year, whereas the former championship Golden State Warriors are probably not in that mix. Who would have thought that? What is irony? Well, let me begin by giving you a technical definition of irony. Here's what it says. It's the expression of one's meaning by using language that normally signifies the opposite, typically for humorous or emphatic effect. For example, don't go overboard with the gratitude. He rejoined with heavy irony. Or it's a state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects and is often amusing as a result. The irony is that I thought he would help me. And finally, it's a literary technique originally used in Greek tragedy. It says, by which the full significance of a character's words or actions are clear to the audience or reader, though unknown to the character. Not only is life filled with irony, but so is the Bible. The Bible has lots of irony in it. And today in our passage in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, we will see that Jesus is on his ministry and healing campaign. He's unfortunately charged and criticized. And what's interesting is you will see that what they are accusing Jesus of, they themselves are ironically and grossly more guilty than Jesus. Our title today is entitled, Doing Good is the Right Thing to Do. Would you bow with me as we pray and ask the Lord to guide our time together? Lord, we thank you that you invite us to yourself always. Whether it be here corporately with the body of Christ of the church, whether it be individually in the quietness of our home, you are always inviting us. So we thank you for that. Lord, as we come to your word today, I pray that we would see not only the irony, but perhaps the clarity of what you're trying to teach through these lessons. Help me now as I handle your word, that I'd be careful and clear, and we invite your spirit to help us to not only understand your word, but also to apply it in our lives. Thank you again, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. We're looking at Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Let me read this passage to you as we begin our time. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. 
And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This morning we're going to look at our outline here. There's three points. Point number one is giving clarity to the law, verses 1 through 5. Second point is grieving over the hardness of heart, verses 5 and 6. And finally, glorifying Jesus, the Son of God, verses 7 through 12. Just some backstory here to set us up as we begin our time. Jesus is continuing on in his campaign of ministry. And in this segment of the Gospel of Mark, it's a healing ministry. He's going around and he's healing people. Now, you could imagine in our day and age, if someone not only claimed but also validated that claim by healing people, that would draw attention. And as a result, tons of people would probably follow. I myself would probably go and say, yeah, I have a back pain, I have a knee ache. I would say, just heal my whole body, just get it all over with. So this is something that's very appealing. Well, Jesus is coming, and because not only is he doing something miraculous, but he's starting to win favor with the crowds the people who were in charge, the Romans and the Pharisees, were not happy about this. They viewed Jesus as an insurrectionist, someone who would potentially overthrow the government to now establish a different power. And part of this goes back to what Jesus would actually predict. He would talk about a new kingdom that would return and rise and would have a different kind of king. Now, Jesus, of course, is not talking about an earthly kingdom. He's talking about heaven and the second return of Christ. But those who heard Jesus did not have that insight. And so because of that, they understood it purely in physical, material, and worldly terms. When we come to our passage now, Jesus is continuing to do something which the legalists, the Pharisees, frowned upon. He's going to do something very good even though by certain laws and government rules, it was restricted. So let's look at our first point, giving clarity to the law. Jesus walks into the actual establishment that was the religious center. It was the synagogue. And there was a man with a withered hand, which meant it wouldn't be used. It possibly was closed. And as he walks in and sees this man, Jesus often would be moved with compassion. He would want to help those who were poor. He would want to help those who were marginalized. And he would definitely want to help those who were sick or ailing. And so now they're watching in verse 2. They watch Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Mark says, so that they might accuse him. The Sabbath was 613 rules and regulations known as the Torah. It was put in place by Judaism. And the Pharisees were the strictest enforcers of Judaism. In this, the whole idea of work or any kind of movement was restricted. That one couldn't go any farther than a quarter mile from your home. If you did so, you would be breaking the law and thus guilty. So now they're waiting to see. He's entered the religious site, the synagogue, and they are now waiting to see, is he going to break the Sabbath or not? Verse 3 picks up and says, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And then he says to all of them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? 
Now, what is Jesus doing here? He's using rhetoric. He set them up with the question that is impossible to answer incorrectly because the answer is blaringly clear. Think about this. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath, which is God's holy day, to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? I mean, it's very clear, right? Obviously, you'd want to do good and you'd want to save life. And the antithesis of that, to do harm or to kill, is not even a consideration as an answer. And by the response, the last four words of verse 4 says, but they were silent. In Greco-Roman rhetoric, when someone poses an argument so strongly, you know that the one who was defeated was defeated when they had no response or rebuttal. They were silent. In our modern days, we would say that the critics were punked. They were moated. That's my older term. And in that, as a result, they could not respond. Because the essence of the law was to do what was good, to do what was right, because it was something given from God to the people to enact within one another. And so when Jesus frames his question in such a way that they couldn't respond, they just were silent. One commentator writes this. He says, Jesus condones the work performed by the disciples in the field and also on the Sabbath. And he says, what should be the response for when Jesus does something good is a joyful celebration of God's creation. Did you get that? Rather than a criticism, there should have been a joyful celebration of God's creation. And yet these law abiders, probably Pharisees, could not recognize that. Here's the irony. There are three ironies that will be found in our 12 verses today. Here's irony number one. The unbelievers accused him of healing. That's in verse two, because they're saying you're healing his withered hand, and thus they're acknowledging his messiahship. So here's the deal. Jesus earlier had claimed to be the Messiah, which meant that he was God, that he has healing power. And they did not want to believe it. They were absolutely against that. And so now they're trying to trap him. But the irony is this. They're trying to trap him because he's healing someone. Huh. But they didn't believe he was the Messiah. How is that? So ironically, in a negative way, in a different way, they were actually acknowledging that he was the Messiah because they're saying he could heal someone, and as a result, that confirms what Jesus claims to be. That's the first point. Let's go to the second point, grieving over the hardness of heart. In verses 5 and 6, we see something that is seldom mentioned in the gospel accounts. It's something that's actually mentioned in Mark's gospel more than the other three. And that is this, that Mark records the emotive state of Jesus. Verse 5, look what it says. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Stop right there. 
two emotions. He's angry and he's grieved. And the reason why, it says because of their hardness of heart. Hardness of heart can also mean a stubbornness of heart. It was a typical Hebrew idiom that meant a spiritual blindness or an active resistance to God's purposes and will. And think about this. If you were in the crowd, if you saw someone that you knew who had been suffering from some kind of uh, physical ailment and all of a sudden got healed, you would be celebrating But instead, these critics were going after Jesus and saying, naughty, naughty, you broke the Sabbath. And so Jesus is like, are you serious? He's peeved, he's ticked off, but more so he's grieved because these people could not see this was an act of God, that Jesus himself was God. And yet, due to their hardness of heart, they were completely blinded to see what was going on. They knew the Old Testament prophecies. The prophecies said the Messiah would come and he would heal. That would be the marker. That would be the validation, the verification that this person is the Messiah. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. And here Jesus comes and actually performs it. He validates it. And yet, they are still hardened and blind to it. Even more so, they do what's called irony number two. Look at this. They accused him of doing something evil on the Sabbath. And the evil was breaking the Sabbath by healing a man with a withered heart. But if you read further now in verse 6, it says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. So, Isn't that interesting? They're saying, you heal this guy, so we want to kill you now. And believe me, that would certainly violate the law, not just on the Sabbath, but on every single day. You see what blindness does to us sometimes? When we can't see this, sometimes we are guilty more so of our own things than the things that we criticize people of. And that's what was happening here. They couldn't see the goodness of Jesus. They couldn't see that the, not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law was to do what's good and to do what's right. And yet they could not see that. They were blinded. Just a question, something for you and I to think about. I wonder if sometimes we get blinded as well. That for different reasons, we have a hardened heart. Call it a bias, call it a predisposition that hinders us sometimes from seeing the full gamut of what God may be doing. And again, let me just encourage you, if we have a hardened heart, it is our responsibility to check that, to make sure it's not a heart of stone, but it's what God has intended, that the Spirit of God would move in your heart to give you a heart of joy. Let's go to our third and final point. Not only was there giving clarity to the law, not only was there grieving over the hardness of heart, but finally now, number three, there's a glorifying of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, as you know, is the main character of the Gospels. So let's pick up now in verse 7. 
So Jesus has done this miraculous thing in the synagogue. And so it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard that all he was doing, they came to him. Word was spreading, and Mark is very intentional, saying, look at all the locations now where word is getting out of this miracle worker, Jesus, a guy who claims to be the Messiah. We're told now in verse 9, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Now here's the other interesting thing. In first century teaching, this was recorded by rabbis, and Jesus is known to do this. The way that Jesus would teach is that the crowd would be on the shore, and then Jesus would be on a boat. And the way that this was set up is the acoustics of that area would be so good that whatever Jesus would say on the water, in the boat, would be reverberating in such a way that everyone could clearly hear it. There wouldn't be a bad seat in the house. And here's another interesting thing. And again, if you study culture, Jesus actually sat in the boat. The typical way to, to lecture in the first century was seated. I thought, wow, that's interesting. I'm a professor. Uh, that's my other gig. And I don't like to sit when I'm lecturing. The reason why is I think it's kind of boring if the professor is just sitting. So uh, we're told that we should probably pace back and forth and stop and stare at people and you know make sure people are awake and, and so forth. But I also do three-hour lectures, and I just came off a, a summer school intensive where we actually did eight hours a day. And to be honest with you, I was trying to be like Jesus. I sat because I just couldn't hang. And I said, well, I hope the content is interesting. Well, Jesus was such a good teacher, he could do that. He could pull it off. And it was characteristic of the time and of the day. But I want you to notice something else that's going on. He not only taught them, but verse 10, he says, For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Now, you might remember there's another episode in the Gospels where there's a woman who had bleeding. And she had heard about Jesus coming and healing people. And if you remember, she is trying to wade her way through the crowd so that she can just touch his cloak. In that episode, if you remember, she does touch the cloak. Jesus feels something coming out of him, and she is healed. Now, again, that episode has been used many times with misunderstanding. And Jesus actually himself clarifies what's going on. There is nothing intrinsically magic about Jesus' cloak. The magic, if you want to use that term, is the fact that the woman had faith in Jesus. So when you see these weird things like tortillas with Jesus' face on it or bread... Don't go there. Don't waste your time. There's nothing intrinsically magic about that. It's always the person of Jesus. And so that woman, yes, she got a touch of Jesus, but it's also because of her faith. She believed that he could heal her. And as a result, that happened. 
Go back to the passage now again in verse 11. It says, And whenever an unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. Now, now listen carefully. These are not believers who are saying this. These are demons. Unclean spirits. They know. They understand who this person is. They said clearly, you are the Son of God. And they probably said it with fear. And so this is interesting because if a demon would recognize who Jesus is, and they're not that bright, to be honest. For people who are seemingly bright, who claim to be atheists, that's stupidity. That they cannot recognize who Jesus is, the Son of God. Well, there's a third irony then that shows up here. It is in the previous section in verse 6, but it culminates here. The odd partnership between the Pharisees and the Herodians. This was mentioned in verse 6 where the Pharisees went out. They held counsel with the Herodians on how to destroy Jesus. Here's the irony. Pharisees, you might remember, were anti-Roman. Roman was the government of the first century. They were anti-Roman whereas the Herodians were pro-Roman. They were bitter enemies of one another. Yet, they became strange bedfellows because they were opposed to Christ. This would be like the most liberal left and the most conservative right meeting together, happy and saying, hey, let's do something together. Almost unimaginable. That's the same idea here between the Pharisees and the Herodians. But what that tells us is how strongly they hated and opposed Jesus. Another irony. My prayer as you look at this is that your life would not be an irony, but rather exemplify clarity. That when you say Jesus you are the Son of God, which even the demons recognize, that you would actually acknowledge that, that you would not have something that would grieve Jesus, the fact that he was angry and grieved, what does it say, due to their hardness of heart. And that finally, that when you understand that there is law, whether it be moral law or general law or biblical law, that it's not about just doing the letter of it, but also the spirit of it. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was doing good. And that was the right thing to do. Three application questions in our central truth and we'll be done. Here we go. Number one, are there ironies in our life that may display confusion? Would they say, huh, that per- I think that person goes to church How ironic that they do this. Or, aren't you religious, but you say this. That is one of the number one deterrents to unbelievers. The hypocrisy that we all, myself included, demonstrate. Where what we talk and how we walk do not match. We have an empty confession, a profession that seems good, but when it comes to possession, there's really nothing there. 
So we need to work on that so that there would not be this duplicity in our lives. Application question number two, do we derive our good acts as a result of Christ and the gospel and not the means? This is where, again, the difference of relationship with Christ versus a religion about Christ are different. We are invited to know him personally. And once we know him, there's kind of this trifecta of the Trinity. God calls us to himself. God sent Jesus for us. And then once we trust him in relationship, God then gives us the Holy Spirit to live within us. The Spirit then helps us to live our lives according to the word of God which is the directive for how we should be, not rules and regulations, but guidelines so that it would save not only a lot of hardship, but save us from ourselves. The good works then come not as a means to God, but it's the result of knowing God. And if you want to see how well or strong or healthy your relationship with God is, check for the fruit. And let me be clear, I don't think you have to have watermelon-sized type fruit. Not all of us will all the time. May I say, it might suffice for you sometimes to have raisin-sized fruit. That that would be some evidence of the fact that you are connected to the vine, to God himself. Third application question, and that's this. Do we grieve when our fellow believers display hard hearts or even if we ourselves do the same. Let's be honest. I'll be honest. There are times where my heart has been hard and I did not initially grieve. But then when I came back to God and His Spirit and He started convicting my heart, I realized, man, what am I doing? Why am I like this? Because we as believers are connected in what the metaphor of Scripture is, the body of Christ, there's a connectedness. So if one member is hurting, we all hurt. It affects all of us. And so when we see a fellow believer who has a hard heart, much like Jesus, we should be grieved by that. And reach out to that person if you can. Because that is the right thing the good thing to do. Let me close our time now with the central truth. Here's a summation of our message for today. Jesus fulfills the spirit of the goodness of the law despite critics and opposition and thus models what is right for us today as well. Jesus fulfills the spirit of the goodness of the law despite critics and opposition and thus models what is right for us today as well. Our goal in life is not to be popular. I hope you understand that. Because as a Christian who sides with Christ and the guidelines and the directives of Christ, because we're in a world that is opposed to the very values of Jesus, there's no way we're going to win a popularity contest. So that should not be our goal. Our goal should be to be right with Christ, to be like Christ. And so through that, that our example would draw people to Christ. I hope and pray that this week, as you ponder this message, this message, that your life would not be an irony, but rather you would do what is good, 
which is the right thing to do. Would you bow with me? Take a moment right now.